Welcome back to Presidential Podcast. This is Philip. And this is Robert. And we are back doing another episode on Jackson. We just finished off in his loss to Adams in the 1828 election, where he won the popular vote, but didn't have a, and had a plurality of, or maybe he had the plurality of the popular vote and a plurality of uh, electoral votes, but he didn't win it outright. And then Clay Henry comes in and gives who Henry was his Clay. Henry Clay comes in who was his nemesis and gives the his electoral votes over to Adams to make Adams the president, and in exchange gets to be Secretary of State. Correct? Yes, and I just like to contrast this to the. Uh, last presidential election, we had the election of uh, 2016. The election of 1824 was decided in the House of Representatives. Gave rise, uh, what were they calling it, Phil? The uh, and era of good feelings? No, the ending, ending the era of good feelings. And this is what the uh, corrupt bargain, right? The corrupt bargain. Uh, in the difference between then and now, or the lack of difference between then and now, when we also have a uh, uh, a presidential candidate who didn't win the popular vote, didn't win the electoral vote so uh, cleanly that people don't, uh, that people are still disputing it, and uh, in our time. It, it seems to be about to lead to uh, impeachment charges against the president. Uh, hopefully we won't get that, but uh, just just the incredible difference between the way we do things now and the way they did things back then, which was for Jackson to go back home uh, for his state legislature to nominate him for president the following year, 1825. The year after the election of 1824, uh, Jackson's home state legislature nominated him for the presidency, putting him back into contention. I mean, he started campaigning basically three years before the election. And, of course, back then they didn't campaign. But uh, from Tennessee, Jackson had kind of a, a position as kind of like the shadow prime minister, or, you know, in our case, the shadow president. Uh, with him being a, a, an established candidate for the presidency, he was able to comment on the events of the Adams administration, and it immediately became a news event, so that people saw uh, President Adams' responses to things and right beside them were placed Andrew Jackson's responses. To now, them. now if you can kind of get into the mindset of the day, Adams comes in. He's not already a particularly popular choice, but he is a kind of con uh, a conciliatory pick for a certain segment of the population. Um, what if he had had great success? Would that have meant that? that uh, Jackson would have never had a uh, 
possible chance to win it in 28? Well, my, my guess is probably not because uh, as, as we discussed during Adams, during our discussion on Adams, Adams actually had a fairly uh, quiet term. There weren't that many big issues that came up before the uh, attention of the American government or the president. And Adams uh, basically he he appealed to the Congress in his uh, inaugural address in his first State of the Union to, to put aside sectional differences to work for the good of the country and to try and uh, cooperate with him. Uh, since we were just ending the so-called era of good feeling, this lengthy period of uh, Democratic-Republican dominance where they essentially were the only party. and You know, we have Democrats and Republicans now, so we can have a pretty good feeling for the unity, the sense of, of national unity uh, that followed the War of 1812 and... Uh, typified this time. Now, uh, people apparently had grown restive with that, and they wanted to see the sort of uh, uh, of change, not change, but they wanted to see the sort of, of strength and the sort of assertiveness that Jackson brought to the presidency. So uh, Adams was a good manager, cultivated man, did a good job. But Jackson was very assertive, had no problems. Adams uh, was much more reserved. Yes. Had no problems uh, criticizing uh, Adams' policies or Adams' actions. And we often think it's better to be in office and have a record to run on. But Adams showed that having a record to run on can also be kind of a hazardous, as uh, Adams' fabulous resume and his relatively uh, peaceful but still lackluster presidential campaign. So, okay, so he didn't have the, let's say, the dynamism that... um, that Jackson had. And and Jackson demonstrated this dynamism even being away from Washington, even being out in Nashville, which was at the time the frontier. So uh, Jackson was able to maintain his hold on the popular imagination, able to assert his claims of national leadership, and able to uh, uh, articulate his... Uh, policies and his differences with with Adams in a very effective way, which essentially left Adams defenseless when the next election came up in 1828. So we know it's going in. Everybody knows going in, it's going to be Adams versus Jackson because Jackson was already nominated three years prior. Jackson wins something like 56% of the popular vote and 68% of the electoral vote. What, what, um, I mean, you just explained kind of the difference between the two figures. 
What was the campaigning like in that time? And how did, I mean, how did Jackson effectively get across his message? One of the aspects of Jackson's whole public life was he was a tough, hard-driving, unyielding advocate of his views. And his extraordinary personal forcefulness and magnetism, I think, led to an upswelling of scurrilous attacks on him, uh, particularly with regard to his wife. His, he, was, he was very sensitive about the uh, way that their marriage gets started, that uh, his, his, his wife had been married to a man who we almost universally think uh, abused her physically and emotionally. She left him. She uh, basically fled to the frontier to escape him. Jackson met her, fell in love with her, took her in, uh, married her. She uh, led him to believe that she had been divorced, and they found out later that the divorce might or might not have gotten through, so they had to go back and uh, reestablish that she was divorced, and then they remarried again. And uh, this apparently uh, played very heavily on her and just was a, a, a constant point of irritation for Jackson. He actually, as, as we mentioned in one of our previous uh, episodes, actually fought a duel with a man. And killed him over this over this huh over this very over this very point. Now, so uh, of course, in the campaign, most of the attacks were directed against Rachel, okay, which hurt her. She died right after the election, and infuriated Jackson. Uh, Jackson's supporters, probably the ones in New York around. Martin Van Buren, the uh, Wizard of Albany, uh, shot back and accused the uh, President of the United States, uh, John Q. Adams, a man of of immense rectitude and probity, of being a procurer or a pimp (laughs) for the Tsar of Russia, you know, saying that he obtained young girls. For the Tsar's Seraglio. He had a he had a youth in his youth he had studied in Russia, right? Right, right. But I, you know, I, the the the, the uh, audacity. Not the audacity, just the the the, the completely far fetched nature of it. I mean, it's like you know when they accused Hillary Clinton and John Podesta of running a child porn ring a in a pizzeria yeah. in 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 Washington. Yeah. You know, the pizzeria, you know, that's where they're running the child porn ring. Mm-hmm. And Hillary and John Podester, of mm-hmm. all people. Yeah, a lot so, of 2016 parallels for you today. So, yeah. So, and, and they, he, the other thing which they accused Jackson of was being part Negro, which or part African-American. Yeah. Which back then apparently was a disqualifying thing for an American and president. what did Jackson say about that? He just denied it? Probably just wanted to take him out and back and whip him or something. Oh, so he pulled a Joe Biden. 
Um, what? <laughs> a lot of 2016 parallels. Yeah. What? Um, what? How did they get their messages across? Was it just through the newspaper, or did they hold rallies? Uh, both. Um, again, they didn't campaign. They stayed home, so they would receive delegations of of, of voters and dignitaries on the porch or in the. Lawn. But by the 1860s, Lincoln was campaigning. Uh, Lincoln was where they started breaking up, but because it, but it also persisted almost until McKinley, mm-hmm. where they would basically stay home. Uh, so the, the the campaigning, like you said, was mostly through newspapers, surrogates. Would they do speeches? Um, they did speeches, but again, it was either at home or it would be. Perhaps at, at an opening, or perhaps they would travel to D.C. and make a speech in the Capitol, or go to their state capital. Would they do make a speech? Would they do a speech for their party, like at a at a republic? I mean, they didn't have a Republican party, but like a Democratic National Convention, they didn't have it. So, um, probably they sent letters of commendation. To people more than they would travel because travel back then was not easy. Easy, and it was kind of it kind of impinged on their dignity. You know, you get dirty, you get tired. Takes a long time. You're out on the road a lot. Um, while you're out on the road, you're not really in charge of anything. So most mostly they stayed home. Wrote letters. Uh, did interviews with with reporters or discussions with reporters. Uh, and made little speeches up from their porches, or perhaps once in a while traveled to a special event or walked in a parade, maybe. All right, so he wins the he wins the the, the, other, the other thing. Let me mention before we go on is there was no electronic media mm-hmm. and no electronic amplification. Mm-hmm. So a speech was a big thing for a guy. I mean, if you had to be loud, you know these these huh? You had to be loud. Yeah, you had to be loud, and you had to be able to stand up there and, and uh, bellow away like that for two or three hours because people liked long speeches back then. What about State of the Union? Was it around then? Uh, Jefferson started writing a letter and sending the letter down to and the – who would uh, read it? The um, – Speaker? Not the speaker, the uh, sergeant at arms. So this is a guy with a big voice would be speaking to the whole yeah. assembly? Yeah, basically. And there's the guy, no amplification. The guy goes, hear ye, hear ye, you know, the president's coming, or whatever he would say. So, yeah, no amplification. Uh, I remember something that Spurgeon said that when he, in the, I don't know which period of the 1800s he is. He might be around this time or maybe a bit later. Oh, he's much later. Okay. He's like 60 years later, right? Okay, late, late 1800s. But he said that... Um, it was important for young ministers who were training to be able to have a basically a good set of lungs on them if they're going to be able to be effective preachers either in the street or in a big church. Well, you uh, you know all any any public address back then, you had to be able to project your voice. Mm. So Jackson wins pretty convincing, very convincingly. Is there something about the way the country split in this? in this election that shows you the sectionalism or no? Well, this was uh, an election 
which probably more than anything was noted for the lack of sectionalism. Um, if I had a map to project, if this were TV, I could project a map and we would see that uh, Adams supporters were uh, in the Northeast in New England, uh, New Jersey, Maryland, uh, New York went for Jackson, and probably that was the work of uh, Van Buren. But we don't have New York broken down, so we can't see if there was a difference between New York City and the rest of the state. But I would make the argument that this was a sociological election more than a sectional election. Mm -hmm. That the areas of the country with big ports, Baltimore, uh, the New England ports, uh, were, were where Adams had strong support. He probably also had strong support in Philadelphia and New York. Is it the wealthy areas? The wealthier classes definitely supported Adams over Jackson. Mm -hmm. I mean, unquestionably. But, uh, like I would say, it was probably more the mercantile areas were more interested. Bankers. Bankers, ship owners, merchants. And they were um, out, they were crushed. They were out, they were just blown away by the farmers, basically. Right, and, and, the and, and the country was very agrarian back then. I mean, now, did did um, when when again did the every man non? I mean, when did every man, regardless of whether he was landowning, get the franchise? Well, this is state issue, but I think Jackson pushed it so that most of the states adopted it during this time. Um, in in New York at that time, uh, the, the, the so-called Tammany Hall had a deed. And when you became a warrior in Tammany Hall, they pretended like it was a big Indian tribe. And they had a sachem and other chiefs. And when you became a, a, a brave in the Tammany tribe, they put your name on the, uh, on the deed of Tammany Hall. Right. So you're de facto a property owner. Property owner, you're right. And they probably stopped doing that in the 1830s. So probably during Jackson's term, the states started uh, adopting the idea that uh, property ownership was no longer a, a requirement did, did, for the federal franchise. Okay. Did – okay. So Jackson wins – He's, he goes in. His inauguration is notable. Well, they, there were a lot of contemporary articles and a lot of contemporary hand-wringing back in 1828 that the United States was about to fall off an abyss. Okay. The common man was not capable of running the government. government. That Jackson's presidency would be... Uh, basically a prolonged episode of the pitchforks and torch crowd uh, confiscating or smashing up or otherwise vandalizing the uh, possessions of the wealthy. Okay. And the inauguration turned out that way. Uh, it was a huge outpouring of people. Huge. Uh, more, probably more people in Washington 
came for the inauguration and lived in Washington, mm. which, you know, Washington back at that time was a muddy little village right. with the Capitol and the White House to decorate it. Right. Um, but there were just overflow crowds. I mean, all the hotels were crowded. Uh, people were staying wherever they could. And they pretty much uh, trashed the White House. I mean, the, the, the carpets all got muddied up from people tramping through with muddy shoes or boots. Um, there's a story about a woman going into the East Room and looking at one of the couches and jumping up on it, seeing how high she could spring up on it as though it were a trampoline, and then other people jumping on it until they popped the springs out through the, the kidney fabric. No. Uh, just just a lot of different things in Washington that played into the fears of the market market they probably, class. They probably had more access in that. I mean, probably in any period in American history, they had more access to the actual White House. They could get closer to it than they can now. They didn't have a fence okay. around the White House grounds. So you could probably just like walk right up and walk right in. <laughs> yeah. And especially, you know, on something like Inauguration Day when, you're not sure who actually is part of the is, staff is part or... of the staff or any of that, and they might have even been changing staff members. Um, and then I think just the throngs of people surging against the butlers and whoever it was holding the doors uh, just got them in. And once once they were in, you know, it's a mob scene. Sure. So uh, the the upper classes were quite frightened by uh, what they saw in, in these developments. Now, did Jackson's presidency then also begin inauspiciously, or how did it start? No, I think he uh, did a pretty good job with uh, picking his cabinet. Uh, his vice president was who? And you didn't speak about Calhoun, who had previously been vice president to Adams. Well, Calhoun continued as vice president. I mean, he, uh, he was a very popular... In the South, uh, he kind of controlled the Southern planter vote. Uh, he believed in states' rights. Uh, John Quincy Adams, of course, was more of a, of a national, uh, centralized government type. So mm -hmm. there had been a long-running feud between the president and the vice president in the Adams administration, between John Quincy Adams and John C. Calhoun over the uh, proper role of the federal government. Uh, John C. Calhoun being uh, an extreme states' rights type, uh, believing literally and fanatically that any power that was not expressly granted to the federal government by the Constitution, devolved down to the states. Right. So they basically had a very tempestuous relationship. And, of course, Jackson uh, is, is remembered for uh, being a major advocate and a major proponent of decentralized government. So Calhoun's uh, philosophy of government and outlook on government fit Jackson's. And with Calhoun as his running mate, uh, any anybody who liked Crawford or any other Southern candidate was kind of married to Jackson's Western uh, factions. 
Okay. Now he did put in um, also Eaton as Secretary of War, and there became a scandal. I think pretty early on with well, Eaton died. Okay, so uh, so Mrs. Eaton, uh, Margaret or Peggy Eaton, who apparently was a very attractive woman, I, mm-hmm. and you know you always wonder, you know, when you see an attractive Peggy woman, is the name. Well, Margaret, which is the given name, oh, okay. Peggy's uh, nickname, uh, but she was uh, viewed as or. The records come down to us that she's a very attractive woman. I, uh, I haven't seen that many pictures of her to really judge. But apparently she was vivacious. She was a, a consummately uh, gracious hostess. Uh, she had a good memory. She had wonderful manners and social skills. And uh, she was good friends with Mrs. Calhoun. Uh, the vice president's wife, and when her husband died, uh, either through jealousy or because of sexism and she no longer was attached to a man, her social status just just evaporated. What was Ian like? Do we know? Uh, Probably kind of a stolid... Uh, bureaucrat. I mean, he he was the Secretary of War, and uh, back then, defense was split between the war and the navy. Okay, okay. War was the Department of the Army, mm-hmm. and they retained that name for it because of the framers of the Constitution's complete mistrust and disgust over the idea of a standing army. I mean, we have the Second Amendment so that citizens would be armed and trained to appear and drill with a bona fide state-run, state-controlled militia, Mm -hmm. which would serve uh, for national defense, to quell rebellions, and to put down uh, slave revolts. So, you know, if, if, if we think of, of the uh, original intent of the Constitution, the idea of overthrowing the government or the idea of having personal arms or personal protection was completely absent. I mean, they wanted to protect the national government. They wanted to provide for national defense. So they thought that if... if uh, uh, citizens were skilled in the use of firearms. They only needed to be drilled a little bit and they could show up like the Minutemen of the revolution and provide an army. That, you know, basically no standing army. So the citizenry had to be ready at all times to fend off invaders, to quell riots or insurrections, or to put down a slave revolt. This, so, right, so-, so Eaton was the uh, chief of a very small army, maybe two divisions. Okay. And, uh, you know, it's buying groceries, supplying arms, assuring that the men are paid. This was a fairly long period of peace. 
So he, he didn't really have a lot to do. I mean, it wasn't a, a strategic job like it became uh, after the Civil War. So Eden, you know, was kind of a colorless, and respectable And how does the Petticoat Affair wash out? Well, apparently Mrs. Eaton was very popular with the cabinet. Mm-hmm. And uh, again, back then, Washington was this little hamlet, uh, not exactly on the frontier, but, but very rural and, excuse me, very separated from any of the urban centers. Okay. Uh, a real backwater. I mean, and the cabinet were pretty much required to be there all the time. The Congress could leave. If the Congress wasn't in session, the members of Congress could go back home. But the cabinet had to hang around and administer the government. So there was not a lot of entertainment. Right. So a popular, imaginative, gracious hostess like Peggy Eaton had a big following. And apparently after her husband died, uh, she became more popular. Uh, and this created a lot of jealousy among the cabinet wives. Right. And they started uh, blackballing her. They started uh, saying, oh, we're not going to any of her parties. Now, Jackson stood up for her, though. And Jackson stood up for her. I mean, Jackson had been through enough with, his, with, with Rachel and had enough uh, insight to how women respond to slice like that in early 19th century uh, society that he thought you guys are and wives are really mistreating this woman and we got to stand up for her. So the, the secretary, the cabinet women were calling Eaton basically promiscuous or adulterous. Well, they were jealous and they, but they were making these claims that she was being promiscuous. They, they probably were. And Jackson was saying, no, she's and Jackson's like, she's, you're the problem, right? You're the problem. Your, your jealousy is, is the problem here. And pretty much he got a new cabinet from it. So most, most of them ended up resigning. You know, if, if, if you look at his cabinet appointments, you see there's two or three names for each of his uh, cabinet right. appointees. Most of them left over. over how the much of this was out in the public and how much of it was behind doors? Uh, that's a good question. Apparently, this uh, incident left a lasting impression among the American elite, uh, persisting for like 30 years. But I don't think, I think because Washington was such a little town. It was so far away from the main court, from the main population centers. Uh, I, I don't, I don't, you know, it wasn't like Monica Lewinsky, where everybody knew who she was, and everybody had a lot of information about what went on. Now, I mean, more it was that everybody who was in the Senate, you know, pretty much the same cast of characters kept. Were people back to saying about Jackson that he was unable to control? like keep his house in order at this time as a criticism? Or were they saying that these, you know, oh, we told you so, these common people are just too... I, th- I think it was unkempt. more of a thing that Jackson formed a cabinet based on 
political patronage. Okay. The people who got him there. Yes. Basically, his, his representatives of his primary supporters. Although he doesn't seem like the type of person... Populated the, the cabinet. But he doesn't seem like the type of person either that's going to just... Like, he seems like the type of person that's going to try to put in the people he wants in rather than just... Well, who the this, party this boss incident wanted. gave Jackson the opportunity to put all those people out. Okay. And then replace them with his own people. Okay. And so in I a way, think, it was a blessing for Jackson. Well, I think this is uh, part of the reason why we associate the spoil system so closely with Jackson. Okay, why don't you give about two, three minutes to explain that, so and then we'll wrap up this episode if, and move on. If, if we think about the way government works, politics works, mm -hmm. political appointments are a key aspect of it. You know, we promise people we'll hire you if you work for us during the campaign. Big money supporters and big political supporters will hire your people if you work for us during the campaign. Yeah. With the cabinet set up the way it was set up when Jackson first started before the Eaton affair, the patronage went through the cabinet officers. Okay. And went back to their patrons back wherever they came from. Okay, so it was more, it was more decentralized. When Jackson could wipe them all out mm. and appoint his own people, mm. he now could control directly all the patronage. And this led to the famous spoil system, you know, which goes back to the old adage of war, to the victor belong the spoils. Right. Jackson believed that any educated man could do any job in the government. Okay. And without having to uh, kind of consider the cabinet members' preferences or demands for patronage, Jackson could control it all. So we suddenly see for the first time in American politics, we see a very, very centralized controlled patronage system. Is this the greatest way that Jackson expanded the power of the executive? I think Jackson expanded the power of the executive more by his personal force. Mm -hmm. But this was a this was a way, you know, when he's there, you're in awe of him, but when he goes away, it's just it's, but this uh, spoil system still the spoil system makes sure, you know, because somebody is loyal to him now running the government. So it, it, it solidified more than it uh, adapted to it, it, it solidified his control of the government more than it, it uh, expanded it. All right. If there's anything else um, that you want to add, go ahead and say it. But we're going to continue on with Jackson's uh, presidency in the next episode. No, I think this is a good place to uh, break and we'll begin on, on the, the next part where we'll talk more about the more substantive issues that arose during Jackson's administration, including the uh, bank crisis, the nullification crisis, and the uh, Indian crises. All right. Well, if that's the case, uh, thank you for listening. This is Philip. And this is Robert. And we're signing off. Bye-bye.